Good morning. Today's scripture reading is going to be from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, and you can find it on page 874 in the Pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Pray with me, please. Father, unless you give us ears to hear, we will not hear the voice of the Good Shepherd from this text. And so I ask that you would give us ears. You'd give ears to those who are outside of Christ to hear his voice so that they may follow him. And having given us ears, we who've believed, I pray that you would use this text to build us up in our faith. We're desperate to hear from Christ. We need to be built up by your word. And so would you, would you please, Father, attend my preaching with your Holy Spirit and power. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was only about four or five years old, my parents took my, brothers and, uh, my brother and sisters and me to Six Flags in Atlanta. I remember three things about that day. It was hot, it was crowded, and I got lost. Now, because I was only four or five, I didn't realize I was lost. When I was older and went to amusement parks, I began to see these like bungee cords or something that people would put around their wrist and put around their kids' wrists so that they could keep up with their kids and apparently trip or clothesline other people in the park. But we didn't have those. I never felt any alarm. As I say, I didn't know I was lost, but my parents knew I was lost. To hear my late mother tell it after the fact, they were yelling my name, they were searching furiously for me, and now that I have kids, I can't imagine how they must have felt in that packed-out park looking for their missing little toe-headed boy. But eventually, they did find me. I don't remember getting separated from them, but I do vividly remember how my mother responded when she and a Six Flags employee who was helping her eventually found me. 
She began crying hysterically. She began hugging me, just loudly repeating my name over and over. Mitchell! Mitchell! (laughs) What she didn't say was, don't you ever get away from me again. Do you hear me? Don't you ever do that again. There wasn't time for that. She had found her boy. It was, it was an event my family has never forgot or let me forget. <laughs> and that kind of thing is going on in Luke chapter 15 today. Jesus tells three parables, and they all center on something lost being found. And so I ask you are you lost? How would you know? Do you have to feel lost to be lost? How do you go about being found? And what what is life for you? What's life supposed to be like for you after you're found? Well, our text is going to have those answers for us. And as we've been saying, ever since we re-entered the Gospel of Luke last October, this section of Luke's gospel, beginning at chapter 9 and verse 51, going into chapter 19, when Jesus eventually makes his way into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. This section is big on teaching from Jesus, teaching pertaining to his kingdom, what kind of people enter it, what kind of people don't. And what we've been hearing the Lord saying over and over is that those who enter his kingdom are those who recognize their sinfulness and their need of him. To use language we saw back in chapter 14, those who enter his kingdom are those who recognize that they are poor and crippled and blind and lame spiritually. They are those who, as we heard last week, hate their own lives and take up their own crosses and renounce all that they have because they've come to see their need for the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to save them and to reconcile them to God. By and large, in the Gospel of Luke, the ones who are not seeing themselves rightly from a spiritual perspective, and therefore those who are opposing and rejecting Jesus, not following him, are the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the lawyers and the Pharisees. And those who are following Jesus are those that the Jewish religious leaders would have regarded as lowly and outcast. That dynamic is present in our text today. Look with me again at chapter 15 and verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. There's something about Jesus, something about his teaching that compels tax collectors and sinners to draw near to hear him. He has a message of good news for them. His message is good news for any who'll receive it. He's not shutting these folks out because of their past or because of their sin or because they don't have the right pedigree or the right affiliations. That's the treatment that the tax collectors and sinners were used to receiving from the Jewish religious leaders. What were these tax collectors, by the way? These were Jews who were employed by the occupying pagan Roman government. 
And they were employed by Rome to collect various taxes and fees from their fellow Jews. And as the system worked, the more these tax collectors were able to squeeze from their fellow Hebrews, the higher their own profits. And so because of their dishonesty and because they, as Jews, were stealing from other Jews and lining the pockets of the godless Romans, these tax collectors were despised. But Luke says there are tax collectors and sinners. These sinners appear to be these kinds of folks whom the Jews uh, had a, these folks had earned bad reputations in the eyes of their fellow Jews. I think these sinners are largely Jews themselves, but because of their lives, they had earned bad reputations among the Jewish religious leaders. That's the tax collectors and sinners, and we see them in verse 1. And then, in verse 2, playing the role we've come to know so well, the Pharisees and scribes are seen grumbling about the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to hear Jesus. You see what they say? This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's right. He receives sinners and he eats with them. He isn't afraid to be seen with them, to share a meal with them, to preach good news to them of forgiveness of sins and peace with God and life eternal. I think these two verses in chapter 15 kind of have the feel of a boxing match. In this corner, the tax collectors and sinners. And in this corner, the Pharisees and the scribes. It has that feel. You got to know who the audience is for these three parables. It's not for nothing that Luke gives us that information. These two parties, the tax collectors and sinners on the one hand and the Pharisees and the scribes on the other, give us the interpretive lens for understanding these three parables. So, with that backdrop from verses 1 and 2 to these seeking and finding parables in mind, let's begin looking at the parables themselves. And we're taking all three of them together today because they're three parables or stories that are all saying the same thing. And what they're saying is what I've given to you as the theme for this sermon, as you can see it at the top of the sermon outline. The theme of these parables is the Son of Man seeks and finds the lost, which makes all of heaven rejoice. All three of these parables are saying to us, the Son of Man seeks and finds the lost, which makes all of heaven rejoice. That's what these parables are teaching us. Now, just a quick word about parables. You can really get into trouble with parables when you start to try and interpret every little detail. When you try and give some deep and hidden meaning to every detail in a parable. Let me, let me encourage you to resist the urge to do that, especially when we get to the third of these three parables today. Again, these parables are all saying one main thing. The Son of Man seeks and finds the lost, which makes all of heaven rejoice. All right. The first of the parables in Luke 15 is about a lost sheep that's sought and found. A shepherd has a hundred sheep, and in counting to make sure they're all there, 96, 97, 98, 99, he realizes that one is missing. The story gets told by Jesus in the form of a rhetorical question. Do you see it in verse 4? What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And the answer is, any one of you would go looking for this sheep. 
And that's what this shepherd does. Verse 4 tells us, he goes out after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he finds the sheep, he doesn't do what I might have done. You know, when I lose my keys or my wallet or my phone or when my children have lost a toy that they just can't sleep without, I go after that thing until I find it. And oftentimes when I do, I don't rejoice. I feel so frustrated that I was mindless about where I put something down or how much time I wasted looking for some dumb thing. But not this shepherd. He doesn't kick the sheep for wandering away. Verse 5 says, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He finds the sheep and he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He isn't lamenting the time and effort he expended looking for the lost sheep. He treats this now found sheep with love and care and rejoices that that he's found the sheep that was lost. In fact, he's so happy about finding his lost sheep that he rounds up his pals and the folks that live around him and he throws a party. When he comes home, verse 6 says, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. What does Jesus mean for us to learn from this parable? He tells us in verse 7, just so, that is, just like the guy who throws a block party when he comes home with his sheep on his shoulders, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. When Jesus seeks and finds a sinner, which is the same thing as saying when Jesus saves a sinner, heaven rejoices. Which is to say, God rejoices. Father, Son, and Spirit rejoice. They make merry. They celebrate. They sing and shout. There's joy from God over one sinner who repents. Now don't confuse Jesus saying there's more joy. And think that he's saying there's any joy over the 99 who need no repentance. No, it's, it's not as though the one who repents brings a lot of joy, and the 99 who need no repentance brings some lesser amount of joy. The one sinner who repents causes heaven, causes God to ring with joy, and the 99 who need no repentance bring God no joy. Why? Because there aren't actually any righteous persons who need no repentance. There are only sinners who recognize their need for repentance and sinners who haven't yet recognized their need for repentance. And when you remember to whom these parables are told, you can guess which side the players are on. The tax collectors and sinners were under no delusion that they were righteous. They knew themselves to be sinners. But the Pharisees and scribes believed themselves to be righteous and in no need of repentance. They were wrong, of course, because the Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one. But that's what they believed about themselves. You can imagine their mindset. Sure, those guys need repentance, those tax collectors, those sinners. But we're all set. We have the law of Moses. We descend from Abraham. We keep the law of Moses. And they brought God no joy. Because they had no repentance. Jesus tells a similar parable in verses 8 through 10. Here we don't have a lost sheep. 
We have a lost coin. And once again, the parable comes by way of a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Of course, a woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, each of these coins worth about a day's wage, she's going to get out a lamp, and she's going to turn the house over, seeking diligently until she finds it. And once again, verse 9, the thing that is lost is sought until it's found. Just like the sheep, so now with the coin. And as in the first parable, when she finds what she's been diligently seeking, it's party time. She doesn't get frustrated at the time and energy that she's used in finding the coin. She doesn't care how much time she's going to have to spend putting her house back together after she's pulled out all the couch cushions and rolled up the rugs looking for this coin. We see only one response from her to finding this coin. She calls her friends and her neighbors over. Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. And, as with the first parable... The point of this second parable is plain. How the woman responds to finding her lost coin is illustrative of how God responds over one sinner who repents. Heaven throws a party. The angels of God strike up the band. And the angels get excited about what their God gets excited about. The one who's on the throne causes heaven to resound with sounds of great joy. Isn't it fun to get this glimpse of our God, brothers and sisters? Yes, King David is right when he says in Psalm 7 that God is a God who feels indignation every day. The prophet Nahum is right when he says that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps his wrath for his enemies. But when a sinner comes home to God through repentance and faith, when the Son of Man who has come, he tells us, to seek and save the lost, seeks and finds a sinner and brings that sinner to repentance, there isn't wrath from heaven, there's joy, there's gladness, there's rejoicing, there's celebration. And these Jewish religious leaders didn't get it. And don't appear to want to get it. They believe themselves to be people God rejoices over because of some merit they think they have with God. And they believe these tax collectors and sinners to be people whom God despises. When the opposite is true. It's the Pharisees and scribes who are the objects of God's wrath because of their self-righteousness and their unbelief and their impenitence. And it's the tax collectors and sinners who see their need for a a Savior who are repenting and coming to Jesus for salvation, as we're going to see an example of in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus. And therefore, it's these tax collectors and sinners over whom the great God of heaven is rejoicing with exceeding great joy. Let's read together the last of these three parables, beginning in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, 
A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the, the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The first two parables open with something being lost. A sheep and a coin. And maybe it's not obvious right away that we've got a lost thing in this parable, but soon we'll see that we do. And it's a son. This father has two sons. And the younger son makes an audacious demand of his father. Father, give me my part of the inheritance. And the father grants his younger son's impetuous demand. He divides his property between his boys. And the younger son takes his inheritance and goes far from home. Jesus says he takes a journey into a far country, verse 13. Far from home, far from his father. And while he's there, he squanders everything in reckless living. This word squandered in verse 13 communicates a kind of scattering of his property, like what he ended up doing with his share of the inheritance was as fruitful as if he had gone onto the top of a mountain and just thrown it into the air and let the wind scatter it away. He scattered it. He wasted it. And only after he had spent everything, when he had squandered everything in reckless living, Jesus says that a severe famine arose in that country. A severe famine. So he's far from home, he's far from family and friends, no property, no money, and now no food anywhere. And we have quite the understatement from Jesus. He began to be in need. Somehow, though, this story gets worse. This young man began to work for one of the people in this faraway country, and his boss sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And as he's working on the pig farm, the younger son is so hungry, he longs, Jesus says. He desperately desires to be fed with the food that he's giving the pigs. And no one gives him anything. It's hard to imagine how a more desperate, hopeless picture could be painted. And then, like a, a pinprick of light in a totally dark dungeon, 
verse 17 comes. But when he came to himself, your translation might say something like when he came to his senses. That's the idea. In the pig pen, as he takes stock of the utterly repugnant situation that he's found himself in, he comes to himself and he realizes that he needs to go home. Even his father's hired servants have more than enough bread. But he says, I'm dying here feeding pigs. I'm wanting to eat their food. So he resolves to go back home to his father and he gets a speech ready because there's no way his father's just going to take him back. Not after what he's done. And where speeches go, it's a pretty good speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then verse 20 says, and he arose and came to his father. Now I want to stop right here and ask you to listen to me carefully. Because we can be apt to think that we don't have any seeking and finding in this parable like we do in the first two. We can make the mistake of thinking that the younger son kind of finds himself. He comes to himself. He comes to his senses and goes home. But as verse 20 begins, he's still not found. How do you know? Well, first, because he's still got the wrong idea about his father. He thinks he's going home to be a slave, not a son. And second, because of what Jesus says about him in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. As long as this younger son is still a long way off, a long way off from home, a long way off from the father, while he's still a long way off, he remains lost and not found. While the younger son remains a long way off, his father saw him. If you please, his father found him. And he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you remember how Jesus said God responds when even one sinner repents? Verse 7, there's joy. Verse 10, there's joy. Here Jesus is saying for a third time how God responds when even one sinner repents. He sees the sinner and he finds him and he feels compassion and he runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. Behold your God, church. This God seeks sinners and finds them and feels compassion on them. He doesn't rehearse their sins to them. He doesn't make them pay him back. We never could. He doesn't turn this into a teachable moment. Let's talk about what you did, son. No. Christian, he saw you when you were a long way off from him. And he felt compassion for the helpless estate that your own sinfulness had put you in. And he ran to you and he embraced you and he kissed you. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul. The son can't even add the one thing that he thought he might bring to the equation. He's got this eloquent speech all prepared. He's been rehearsing it all the way home, and he can only get a part of it out. Compare what the son says in verse 21 with what he planned to say back in verse 19. 
It's as if the father cuts him off mid-speech by shouting to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. My boy isn't coming back as a slave. He's my son. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was, a de- was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Party number three in this chapter. Are you starting to get the impression that God gets kind of excited when a sinner repents? Three parties in this one chapter. And this last one's a real hootenanny complete with meat provided by the calf that people in this day who had had the means would have been specially feeding and fattening up and reserving for the most special of occasions. You could wish the parable ended on that high note, but it doesn't. Let's pick up the reading at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We're back now to the older brother who we first saw in verse 11. He's been working out in the field. As he's walking back in, he hears music and dancing. Maybe smells that fattened calf cooking away. So he calls one of the servants over and asks what's going on. And the servant brings him up to speed. Your little brother came back. So your dad killed the fattened calf because your brother came back safe and sound. And the older brother, the dutiful one, the one who didn't scatter his inheritance in the wind, is none too pleased. In fact, Jesus says in verse 28, he was angry and refused to come to the party that his father threw. And so his father comes out and implores his son to come in, but he doesn't. Instead, he lays out his case against his father. He explained why his father has not treated him rightly. I've served you all these years. I've never disobeyed you. And I never got even a stinking goat, much less a fattened calf, so that I could celebrate with my friends. And then, when this son of yours, who, mind you, took the inheritance you gave him and blew it on prostitutes, when he comes crawling back, what do you do? You kill the fattened calf for him. And I'm struck for the second time in this parable with the father's marvelous restraint and not taking the opportunity to rearrange his son's facial features. (laughs) Instead, look at verses 31 and 32. The father's mercifully pleased with his older boy, trying to get him to see that the son 
This older son, by virtue of being in close proximity to the father, was always in a blessed position. All that the father had was always his. You see how lovingly and patiently he entreats his son. Son, it's entirely appropriate for there to be a celebration because your brother, who was as good as dead to us, is alive. He was lost and he's found. And here's why it's essential not to forget to whom Jesus tells these parables. Because this older son illustrates the heart attitude of these Pharisees and scribes towards the tax collectors and sinners that they're grumbling about back in verse 2. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Their eternally tragic error is that they didn't think themselves sinners. And so... Jesus didn't receive them and eat with them. Or when he does eat with them, he's blasting them for their sinful attitudes. The older brother hated the younger brother because of what he had done. He didn't think the younger brother deserved the treatment he was getting from the father. And in that way, the older brother was right. The younger brother didn't deserve the lavish love he was receiving from the father. But where the older brother erred was in his thinking that he did. He thought that his years of work and his years of not running off from home merited the father's love. Much like these Jewish religious leaders thought that their being born Hebrew and striving to obey the law of Moses merited them God's love. It's striking to me that it's a feast that the older brother is being invited to and is refusing to enter. Isn't that what we saw from the parables just one chapter ago in Luke 14? The master throws a banquet. And the first round of invitees, which picture the Jewish religious elites, they don't come in. And so the banquet is filled instead with the poor and crippled and blind and lame, who are the analogs from a spiritual perspective of a son who blows an inheritance on prostitutes before he humbly comes back home. And so the Pharisees and the scribes Pride and self-righteousness were keeping them out of the party to end all parties. The eternal heavenly party, just like this older son's pride and self-righteousness, kept him from entering the party that his father threw for his returning younger son. Do you see? But there's another older son in Luke 15 who's not at all like the older son in this parable. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean Jesus is an older son? Well, Matthew 2 tells us that when God says in Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew 2 tells us that Hosea, God through Hosea, is talking about Jesus there teaching us that Jesus is the true Israel. What does God say of Israel in Exodus 4? Israel is my firstborn son. Hebrews 2, remember, Hebrews 2 makes clear that Jesus is the elder brother of all who believe in him. And so it's fitting to regard Jesus as our older brother, God's firstborn son. And this older brother doesn't stay outside the party with his arms crossed and his bottom lip out when his younger sinful brother comes home. 
No, Christian, our older brother, the Lord Jesus, doesn't just throw the party. He died to make the party happen. The eternal party to which we are guests doesn't center around the slaughter of a fattened calf, but the slaughter of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our older brother doesn't get mad when we're found in our sins, lost and far from home. He's the one who came from heaven, seeking and finding us, dying in our place, willingly being sent far from the Father on our account so that we could draw near to the Father through him. Our older brother bears in his own body our penalty for our sins so that the Father can righteously and justly celebrate our coming home and not have us pay for a single thing because we never could. Maybe most marvelously, our older brother doesn't wag his finger at us for blowing the inheritance with our sinful living. Instead, he says, share with me my inheritance from the Father. Share with me my inheritance. Enjoy eternal glory with me. Enjoy eternal fellowship with the Father and the Spirit with me. Our older brother doesn't try and keep us away or get mad when we come back home. He's the one who goes and gets us by his suffering and humiliation in our place on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead. Hallelujah for our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now... How should we respond to this text? First, I want to speak to you who are not yet saved. All week long, I've been humming the hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. I'm sure I was driving people at Costco on Tuesday batty. I just noticed I was walking up and down the aisles just whistling this hymn over and over and over. Why? It's because, of course, I knew this sermon was coming, and I knew I wanted to appeal to you non-Christians to be saved, and I just kept thinking of this line from that hymn, Sinner, will this not suffice? Sinner, will this not suffice? And so if you're outside of Christ, that's my question to you. As you see what Jesus himself says about his attitude toward, uh, toward repentant sinners... Father, Son, Spirit, all rejoicing with exceeding great joy over one sinner who repents. When you see how this father responded to his returning younger son, who was as wicked and vile as you could ever think of being, I ask you, you who are outside of Christ, what is it about this Savior and his love and his mercy and his grace that doesn't compel you to leave your sin and come to him? When you see his love and forgiveness for sinners, I ask you, sinner, will this not suffice? Is this not enough for you? Some of you, when I've ministered the gospel to you, those of you who are outside of Christ, I've told you that if you ever come to Christ, when we baptize you, the congregation is going to blow the roof off this place. I was thinking this week, forget what we'll do. The Lord God Almighty will rejoice. 
when you repent and believe on his son. And I say, sinner, will this not suffice, making the halls of heaven peal with sounds of joy and gladness over your repentance? I know that others of you who are not Christians are weary of hearing us talk of hell and judgment and wrath, and we don't apologize for it because the Bible speaks abundantly of those things. But that's not what's immediately before us today. What this text holds up is God's grace and mercy toward those who recognize that they're lost and need finding, toward those who are dead and need being made alive. God abounds in love and kindness toward those who turn from their sin and turn toward him. He runs to them even while they're still a long way off and has compassion on them and runs to them and embraces them and kisses them. You who are outside of Christ, I ask you, do you fear that you're going to have to to make some repayment to God for all you've done? Forget it. You could never do it. And besides, Jesus paid it all in his death on the cross. Do you fear that God's going to make you answer for all you've done? No. Just come. Come and be forgiven. Come and be made new. Come and and hear heaven ring with the joy that emanates from the throne of God when even one sinner repents. See your lostness. See your need. Forsake your sin. Be found by him today. Ask him to seek you and find you, to seek you and save you today. And to my brothers and sisters, I wonder if you would say your joy is a little low. I wonder if you'd say your affections for Christ are a little low. Is your love for Christ a little cold? If so, I want to call on you to remember when you were in the pig pen. I call on those outside of Christ to realize they're in the pig pen. But I call on you, Christian, to remember when you were in the pig pen. Now, some of you came to faith early in life, and so you don't have a life of profligate living in your background. And others of you, I've heard your testimonies, were pretty moral and compliant people before God saved you, and so you don't have a testimony that would peel the paint off the walls. But but don't be confused, thinking that some sinners are somehow more dead in their trespasses and sins than others. Before you were saved, brother or sister... Whether you were saved early or late in life, whether you were saved out of gross immorality or saved out of moral self-righteousness, you were still following after Satan. You were still following the prince of the power of the air. Spiritually, for you, it would have been a promotion to be found in a pig pen because before God saved you, you were a subject of the domain of darkness. You were foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. And I say, do you remember that, Christian? Do you remember when Christ regarded your helpless estate and applied his shed blood to your soul? And so if your love for Christ has cooled, if you're noticing in yourself a little more of an entitlement mentality than you'd like to see. 
a little more pride, a little less joy, a little more discontentment, being easily frustrated or easily angered. Think back to when God gave you the grace to come to yourself. Think back to when he sought you and found you and all of heaven rejoiced. Remember your pig pen state and remember and rejoice at his coming to find you. And lastly, dear believer, beware the older son's error. I think there are at least a couple of ways we can be like this older son. Now, be clear, the older son represents someone who's lost. So a genuine Christian will never be exactly like this older son. But there are some ways we can start to look like him. And I want to warn you against those. First, we can seek to withhold salvation from people we don't think deserve it. We can see the mess their lives are in and we can conclude, perhaps even accurately, that they're the victim of their own sinful and foolish choices and we can kind of think, sirs, you're right, there's your bed and now you've got to lie at it. And I want to ask you, what if the person who got the gospel to you had had that attitude with you? What if the father had had that attitude with you? You'd still be dead in your sins. And so it's appropriate to say humbly, as we see any sinner there, but by the grace of God go I. So I ask you, brother and sister, is there any sinner or maybe any kind of sinner that you hold at arm's length? Is there any sinner or any kind of sinner that you wouldn't rejoice at seeing the gospel get to and get a hold of? If so, I call on you to repent of being like the older son in that way. I think another way that we can be like the older son Christian is when we start to think that we've begun to accumulate some merit with the father. Now, we know enough to know that you can't truly get saved unless you come to God empty-handed, but our remaining pride is such that after a while... We've been followers of Christ a few years, and we can start to think that our standing before God isn't quite as contingent on his mercy and on Christ's righteousness as it was back when we first believed. And so when things don't go our way, we know God is sovereign. We know he could cause them to be otherwise. And especially when we see things happen to others that we wish would happen for us, we can start to get a little transactional. We may never use these words, but our hearts can betray an attitude. Look, these many years I've served you. I've served this church. I've sacrificed time and money and vacations, and I'm not married, and I don't have children, and I have this diagnosis, and I don't have that house, or I don't have that car, or I don't have that income, or I don't have that job. You never even gave me fill in the blank. And the father reminds us, child, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. And so, Christian, I want to say to you that when you detect that being the father's child isn't enough, 
And when you think that you relate to the Father to any degree based on your merit and not exclusively by his mercy and Christ's righteousness, you're sliding into older brother country. And if that kind of living comes to characterize you and you never repent, like this older brother, you may find yourself outside the party. And so where you see the older son's mindset, Christian, repent by God's grace. Well, Jesus is saying to us three different parables, one message. The Son of Man stops at nothing to seek and to find sinners. And when he does, all of heaven rejoices. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of this passage. Thank you for the marvelous, the amazing grace that you've shown us in your Son. You would have been entirely just never to save a single one of us, to leave us lost, dead in our sin. And instead, you were pleased to crush your son for us in our stead. You were pleased to send your son to seek us and to save us. And so we praise you. Oh, Father, may we live lives of unceasing humble gratitude and joy for the Son of Man who seeks and finds sinners. And thank you, Father, for being the kind of God who rejoices, who rejoices when even one sinner repents. I pray that there would be sinners who repent even today. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.